Well, good morning. Speaking at the closing plenary session of a conference like this is a little bit like stepping up to the plate in the bottom of the ninth inning with two outs in the World Series and you're down by one. No pressure. No pressure. But what a great weekend it's been. uh, Katie and I are just so privileged to be a part of what's happening here and to share in this closing moment together. I think as I think about what we're going to do here this morning in this closing session, the last thing any of us need is more information. Yeah, that brought some laughs. Your notebooks are already full. You've learned a lot. You've just got all kinds of data. We don't need information as we close. We need transformation. We need a divine touch. We need Christ to come. Let me uh, start with an illustration. It always helps me to paint a word picture. In our family at Christmas, we like to put together a jigsaw puzzle. You put it out on the table in the living room, and then just sort of through the days of Christmas, Everybody puts a piece here and there, and hopefully at the end of four or five days, it's together. Well, a few years ago, we had a, I think it was 500 pieces, not that big of one, but it was of a chateau in the Loire Valley, Chenonceau, if you know the chateau of the Loire Valley, the one on the bridge across the river Cher. Well, we worked for about three or four days putting all those pieces together, and we finally finished But there was only one problem. We had lost one piece. And every time you looked at Chenonceau, you didn't see the beautiful arches of the bridge or the manicured gardens. You saw that one stupid piece that was lost. It just ruined the whole puzzle. That's the best way I know to introduce our scripture this morning. We're going to read the story of the rich, young ruler. I mean, he had 499 pieces of his life figured out. He had put together an amazing picture. There was just one problem, just one. There was one piece that wasn't there. And all you could see of his life is wasn't is what wasn't there. Let's read the story. If you've got your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 10. And let me read the story. You've heard this before, but this is the life that could have been. It's a wasted life because of the one piece that ruined the puzzle. Mark chapter 10, I'm beginning at verse 17. And as Jesus was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. Don't defraud. Honor your father and mother. The man said to him, Teacher, 
All these commandments I've kept since my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. And he said to him, there's one piece missing. Good job on the 499. But there's one thing you lack. Go, sell all that you have, and give it to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. And then come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful because he was very rich. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And his disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished. And they said to Jesus, Then who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, With man, it's impossible. But not with God. Because with God, all things are possible. Let's bow our heads just a moment. Father, we ask now that you would take this old familiar story and you would make it live for us and wherever we're holding out on you lord would you reveal the missing piece so you can do what's impossible for us to do lord i pray that your spirit would find something combustible in all of our hearts this morning and that you would ignite us with a passion and a conflagration of love that will change our hearts and spread around the world. For the sake of the kingdom and in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. I don't like how-to sermons. I mean, those sermons that give you like five steps to a better marriage or four steps to a financial integrity. But I'm going to preach a how-to sermon this morning. How to waste your life. When I think of a wasted life like the rich young ruler, it just sort of fits to preach the kind of sermon I don't like, a how-to sermon. But I want to give us four steps this morning. If you want to live a life that is inconsequential, insignificant, mediocre, and wasted. I don't know about you, but those words put terror in my soul. To think of coming to the end of life... And having lived inconsequentially, it didn't matter. It didn't make a difference. Now, I don't mean that this rich young ruler didn't have a nice life. He probably had a lovely wife. He probably had 2.3 kids and a Labrador retriever. You would have loved to have this guy as your next door neighbor. I mean, he's a nice, nice guy. But he had an opportunity. To join Jesus on a mission to change the world. And he blew it. 
He missed the opportunity. Once in a lifetime, an opportunity like this comes along. And he missed it. I mean, he could have been one of the disciples. Jesus said, follow me. It's the same thing he said to Peter, Andrew, James, and John. We might have had another book of the New Testament written by this guy if he had said yes. He might have taken the gospel to China or to Spain or to Mongolia. Parents today might still be naming their children after this guy, but we don't even know his name. Because he missed the opportunity. He blew it. He stands as an illustration of a wasted life. I grew up in a day when we sang hymns in church. Some of you don't even know what a hymn is. <laughs> but even when I was a lost, spiritually dead teenager, sitting in a United Methodist church, singing hymns, I didn't know what they meant, but there was one hymn that bothered me, and it stuck with me, and it troubled me. It's the poem put to music of a man named James Russell Lowell, and the first verse, I could quote it when I was young, and I can still quote it when I'm old. Once to every man and nation comes the moment to decide. In the strife of truth and falsehood, for the good or evil side, some great cause, some great decision, offering each the bloom or blight. And this is the part that bothered me. And the choice goes by forever. Twixt the darkness and the night. Once to every man and nation comes the moment to decide. That moment came to this young man and he blew it. We know quite a bit about this young man. He was young, he was powerful, and he was rich. Isn't it interesting? He had his riches when he was young. Most people get their riches when they're too old to enjoy them. He had his power when he was young. And he had these three things, youth, riches, and influence, all at the same time. What an incredible opportunity. But not only was he young, rich, and powerful, he was deeply spiritual. He came running to Jesus. And he knelt at Jesus' feet. I mean, it doesn't get better than this in church. To see a young person who has resources, who has power, eagerly, passionately running to Jesus and kneeling. I mean, we'd make this man the senior pastor of the church. I mean, what's missing in a life like that? You don't see wealth and powerful people running or kneeling. Can you imagine Donald Trump running and kneeling? Just the image of it shows how, what a remarkable young man he was. And when Jesus said, keep the commandments, and the young man said, I've been doing that stuff since I was a kid. Jesus didn't call him a liar or a hypocrite. He accepted his testimony. And I love verse 21, where the text simply says, and when Jesus looked at him, he loved this young guy. 
I mean, this was a guy his heart just went out to because of his passion, because of his zeal, because of his obedience, because he wanted to live a life that matters. And Jesus loved him. And he said, there's just one piece missing in the puzzle. You've done so good with 499 pieces. Your life is remarkable. Dare I say, like the lives of many in this room, young men and women I've met this weekend, make me think of this guy. Youth, passion, obedience, zeal, sometimes wealth and influence and power. It's all there. And Jesus loved it and said, there's one thing missing, just one. Sell all that you have, give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in a bank that will never fail and pays incredible dividends. And then come, follow me. Once to every man and nation comes the moment to decide. But Jesus was asking this young man to do the one thing this young man couldn't do. Let me rephrase that. Not that he couldn't do it, he wouldn't do it. And that was to get rid of the possessions to which he was clutching. And rather than changing the entrance requirements for Christian disciplement, for discipleship and saying, well, don't worry about it. You're mostly there. Come on and join me anyway. Jesus let the biggest fish who'd ever volunteered to be a disciple jump back in the lake. I say that because Peter was a fisherman. He knew what it meant to catch a big fish. And as he's watching this rich young ruler volunteer to be a disciple, he can't believe that Jesus is throwing the biggest fish who's ever been caught from the Lake of Galilee back in the lake. But Jesus lets him walk away. And so his life was inconsequential. We don't even know his name. He may have been a nice guy. He may have served on the boards of his church or synagogue. But his life didn't make a difference. It was inconsequential. What do you do when you climb the ladder to success only to discover at the top the ladder is leaning against the wrong wall? It's taking you somewhere that's not worth going. God wants to give you an opportunity to make sure the ladder is leaning against the, the right wall. What do you do when you succeed in doing the wrong thing? I don't know about you, but I would rather die young doing the right thing than, play the last, than spend the last few decades of life playing golf in Florida doing the wrong thing. What are you aiming for? Are you going to live a life that matters? Let me give you a formula, a recipe. Four steps to living a wasted life. And this formula is surefire, bona fide, money-back guaranteed recipe for how to waste your life. Are you ready? First thing, give Jesus almost everything. Give him most of your life. Give him 499 pieces. Come to a place of surrender where you're giving Jesus 99% of your life. 
Isn't he lucky? And I promise you, I guarantee you, you'll waste your life. Somebody may be saying, well, man, in math class, 99% is very impressive. That's called an A+. In most classes, let me remind you that following Jesus is not math class. It's like marriage. If you'd go back 39 years with me, I went on a date with Katie, and in my pocket that night I had a diamond ring. Now imagine, if I had said to Katie that night, who's here, by the way, somewhere, if I'd said to Katie, Katie, I got an incredible proposition I want to make. If you will marry me, I promise you, I will be faithful to you 364 days out of every year. Why are you laughing? That's 99% commitment. In math class, that works very well. Marriage is not math class. And there's a name for a man who's faithful to his wife 364 days out of the year. It's called an adulterer. And that's exactly what it is with Jesus Christ. He emptied heaven. He left everything to come for you and for you to give him most of your life. You'll waste your life because it doesn't work until you're all in. It's sort of like bungee jumping. You can't bungee jump 90% of the way. You got to just sort of dive. You're all in or not. Give Jesus most of your life and you'll live a life that's inconsequential. Forgettable. Jesus said it this way in Luke chapter 14, verse 33. Those who do not give up everything cannot be my disciples. You can't do it. Let me give you a second piece of the formula to live a wasted life. Never take a risk. Play it safe. Let your fears control you. I can just hear this rich young ruler saying, but Lord, if I give you everything, I mean, that would mean I've got to trust you and live by faith the rest of my life. (laughs) I want to say, well, bless your little heart. What did you think was involved in following the second person of the Trinity? It's all about faith. It's all about surrender. It's all about trusting him to meet your needs. Can you imagine going into a marine recruitment office, thinking about joining the Marines and saying to the recruitment officer, now, wait a minute, before I sign the line, I'm not going to get hurt, am I? Do you know that's exactly what you're doing when you're signing up for Christian discipleship? Can I make you a promise? If you sign up for Christian discipleship, for following Jesus Christ, you're not only going to get hurt, you're going to get killed. It's part of the job description. It costs you your life. Jesus said, no one can follow me unless he denies himself and takes up his cross and follows me. Paul said, I've been crucified with Christ. 
Nevertheless, I live. Yet, it's not me living. It's him living in me. Because I'm dead, he lives. That means I'm really Paul for the first time in my life. Martyrdom is part of the job description. Martyrdom is what it's about. So if you want to waste your life, play it safe. Never take a risk. If what you're looking for in life is ease, comfort, security, safety, health, wealth, and happiness, then don't become a disciple of Jesus Christ. You'll be making a foolish choice. I love the way C.S. Lewis put it in Mere Christianity. He said this, I didn't go to Christianity to make me happy. I always knew a bottle of whiskey would do that. And then he says, if you want a faith to make you really comfortable, I certainly don't recommend Christianity. I love that quote. The rich young ruler was trying to play it safe. He was hedging his bets. He was making sure he kept his resources so he could protect himself. And he wasted his life. Some of you may be familiar with the story of Sir Ernest Shackleton and his expedition to Antarctica. He set out in a ship called the Endurance in 1914. And his intention was to cross the continent of Antarctica on dog sleds. It's a wonderful story. The ship got caught in the ice and sank. And for 18 months, he and his men lived on ice flows and Seal blubber for 18 months. It's an incredible story. But according to what I've read, before he left, when he was putting the expedition together, he put an ad in a London newspaper, and it said something like this. Wanted 27 men to accompany Sir Ernest Shackleton on an expedition to Antarctica. Wages, minimal. Conditions, deplorable. Chance of survival, slim. And he got 5,000 applications. Why? Because every one of us, deep in our DNA that God wired into us when he created us, there's something that says, I want to find a cause that's worth dying for. And better to die at age 20 doing the will of God than die at age 90 not doing the will of God. We're made, we're hardwired to give up everything for a cause that matters. When we lived in France, on numerous occasions we would go to Normandy. And just above Omaha Beach is the American Cemetery. 9,000 crosses of 18, 19, 20-year-olds who gave their lives, fighting tyranny and evil, laying down their lives. And when we would stand there in that cemetery, it's like, what a way to give your life, giving your life for something that matters. What What matters infinitely more than World War II is the kingdom of God And the battle for the souls of men and the kingdom of God. It's worth giving it all.
Don't play it safe. Let me give you a third way to waste your life. If you want to waste your life, put your family before God. Now, if the first two didn't get you, maybe that one will. Put your family before God. Let me read to you from Luke's gospel. This may not have been the rich young ruler's issue, but it was for numerous others in the New Testament. Luke chapter 9, verse 59. Jesus said to another man, follow me. And the man replied, Lord, let me first go bury my father. Two things. First of all, Lord, me first. It doesn't get more obvious than that. Lord, let me first. And when he says, go bury my father, he doesn't mean that my father's already died and I just need to do the funeral arrangements before I pack my bags. What he means is, my father is elderly and I don't know how much longer he's going to live, but let me just sort of hang out at home for an unknown amount of time until it's appropriate for me to go. And Jesus said, let the dead bury their own dead, but you proclaim the kingdom of God. And another one said to him, Lord, I'll follow you, but let me first say goodbye to my family. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. I wonder how many people have missed God's plan for their lives because they put family before God. Parents, spouse, children. And we miss the life that matters because we put family before God. Again, there's a biblical term to describe anyone who puts anything before God. It's called idolatry. It's called idolatry. I came across recently the letter that Adoniram Judson wrote to the father of Anne Hasseltine, the woman he wanted to marry. Adoniram Judson is considered by most historians as the first, at least really significant, American missionary. In 1812, he sailed for Burma, what is now Myanmar. But he wrote his future father-in-law, a letter that I want to quote to you. Dear Sir, I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world, whether you can consent to her departure to a heathen land and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of missionary life, whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you? Wow. And Anne's father said, I give my daughter to you in marriage. He never saw his daughter again. But that's what it means to follow the one with the nail-pierced hands who invites you to follow him. 
That relationship trumps every other relationship. Let me give you a fourth way to waste your life. If you want to waste your life, live for tomorrow rather than today. Live as if today doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is when I get out of med school and then I can really start living. Or when I get through with my education. Or when I get married, then it will happen. The rich young ruler said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? As if he's asking, it's not today that matters, but tomorrow. Some like to call this destination disease. It's the disease that puts a delusion on your thinking so that you think true significance and true meaning can't happen here today. It can only happen there tomorrow. I started suffering with destination disease in the first grade. I remember it clearly. I looked down the hall at the fourth graders. They were huge. And I said, that's where life happens. Not in the first grade. It's down the hall. Then I got to the fourth grade. And you know what I found? Nah, it's not the fourth grade. It's in middle school. Those kids are incredibly cool. And I started living not for the fourth grade, but for middle school. Then I got to middle school. And you'll never guess what I found. No, it's not here either. It's in high school. Oh, man, that's where life happens. And you know how the story goes. I got to high school. Nope, it's in college. I got to college and learned, nope, it's not in college. It's when you get married. I got married and said, nope, it's not marriage. It's when you have children, when your house is filled with all the little lovely sounds of children. (laughs) Then when that happened, I said, nope, not there. It's when all those little sounds of children leave the house. And it was somewhere, I think, in my mid-30s when I began to think, it's retirement. And I realized the insanity of wasting a life not living where I am, but living there, then. Don't waste your life. Today is the day. Now is the time. Tomorrow never comes. Yesterday is gone forever. Live today. And if you're in med school thinking, if I can just get past med school, then life will happen. Ask the Holy Spirit to rid you of that delusion and ask Him to help you live today. You know, in the New Testament, I cannot find really one single example where someone becomes a Christian By praying the sinner's prayer or by asking Jesus into your heart. That's the way we in the evangelical church like to talk about it. But in the New Testament, that's not really how it happened. I'm not opposed to saying the sinner's prayer. I encourage people to do it. I'm not opposed to asking Jesus in your heart. I like the way, frankly, Dietrich Bonhoeffer described what it means to be a Christian. He said it this way, when Christ calls a man or a woman, he bids him come and die. As we close this service this morning, that's the invitation I want you to hear. Come and die. 
come and give him everything. You say, Stan, that's going to cost me everything. Yes, it will. The cost of discipleship is great. But have you considered the cost of non-discipleship? Have you considered the cost of living an inconsequential life? I plead with you. Come this morning and do what the rich young ruler would not do. You have that opportunity. You know, there's a rumor going around that you can be a Christian without being fully surrendered. That you can be a Christian and have Jesus as Savior, but not Jesus as Lord. That you can be a follower of Christ without following Christ. Do you hear the irrationality to think that you can follow Christ without following Christ? You know, if somebody walked into the door and said, I'm a vegetarian, but there's nothing I like better than a good red steak. We would all laugh and say, that's ridiculous. Or if somebody walked in the door and said, I'm a jogger, but I never run. Or I'm a Republican, but I always vote Democratic. We would say, that's, that's insanity. But if somebody walks in the door and says, I'm a Christ follower, but I don't follow Christ. We all sort of stroke our theological chins and say, yeah, I understand that. Because I'm sort of like that too. I'm on the war path against a kind of understanding of the gospel that permits people to say they're followers of Jesus when they're living like the devil. When they're living for self, when they're giving Jesus most of their lives and they've adopted a theology that makes that, that's okay. Can I do that? The rich young ruler is exhibit A for how to live a wasted life. I want to ask you this morning, what's holding you back? Where are you resisting that full surrender? Of your life to Christ or that playing it safe or putting your family first or living for destination tomorrow somewhere else. Where are you resisting? I learned long ago as a pastor, when you talk about full surrender to Jesus Christ, you don't really have to point the finger and give illustrations because the Holy Spirit can be trusted. He's already doing it right now. In hearts all across this room, you know where you're resisting him. You know where you're holding back. That's the one piece of the puzzle he wants you this morning to give to him. In the South Sea Islands, <clears throat> I watched a documentary once and actually saw this portrayed on screen. Certain tribes have a, ways they, a way they capture monkeys. They eat monkey meat. But they have to catch the monkeys first. And this is how they did it. <clears throat> they take a hollow log and drill a hole in it <clears throat> that's just big enough for a little monkey hand to slip through. And then in that hollow log, they put peanuts, something that monkeys love. The hunter then takes a club and hides in the bushes and waits. Monkey comes along, smells the peanuts sees the hole, 
slips little monkey hand in the little monkey hole, grabs a fistful of peanuts, and then he can't get his hand out. Why? Because he's got a fist full of what he wants. And when I watched this documentary, the hunter started coming out of the bushes at that point with a huge club, just walking toward that monkey. The monkey saw the hunter, started pulling with all his might, screaming. And I wanted to say, let go of the peanuts. (laughs) This doesn't have to happen. But monkeys are stupid. And the monkey is caught and eaten for supper. Trapped in a trap of his own devices. That's about the best illustration I know of repentance I could give. What peanuts are you holding on to? What are you holding on to and say, I'll give God 99%. I'll give God most of my life. Isn't he satisfied? Let go of the peanuts. You've been given a card. Do you have that card with you? I think when you came in the door. Yeah, you're finding it. As we close our service, if you want to use the card, it's helpful. But what's really important is that you just do business with the Holy Spirit. I want to invite you to let your chair be your altar. As you deal with the question that the rich young ruler was dealing with. Once to every man and nation comes the moment to decide. I cannot promise you that if you make the wrong decision today, you'll have another opportunity tomorrow. Sometimes we do. Sometimes we don't. And the choice goes by forever. I think the rich young ruler always, till his dying day, lived with the question, I wonder what my life would have been if I'd done what Jesus asked me to do. Don't live an inconsequential life. I would ask you, the card actually says, to write down the next step. That's appropriate in your journey, in your commitment toward following the Master. But I would dare to ask you to write the name of the peanut that you're clutching to. Just write it right there for you and God to see. Name it. Maybe there's more than one peanut. Name them. And when the music begins to play in a few moments and we have a closing season of worship, you're going to have an opportunity to come right up here and place these cards, if the act would be meaningful to you spiritually, On what beneath my feet is a map of the world. It's it's marvelous. I don't know if you can see it, but it's a map of the world to give you a chance to, if it would be meaningful, to place it in a location that has significance of, Lord, I'm all in. I'm all in. My fears don't control me. My family doesn't trump my decision to follow you. And I'm not living for tomorrow. I'm living for today. And I want to seal it right here in the bottom of the ninth inning. Bases are loaded. I want to make sure to get at least a single. And when I leave, I won't leave like the rich young ruler who left sad. I'll leave with a song in my heart that comes to those who are fully and completely his. Father, we ask you now in these closing moments as we worship, 
and as we do business with your spirit, and as you help us to name the peanuts that are keeping us from full surrender, Lord, would you help these closing moments to be a moment that is life-defining, that we'll look back at this moment and say, it was there on that Saturday morning service of the Global Missions Conference that, Lord, I gave my all, and that's when the compass was set, and that when the surrender was made, and that's when my life took a course that has led it to be a life that matters, a life of significance, a life that's bearing fruit for the kingdom of God. Lord, have your way in every heart, we pray, in these closing moments. In the name of Jesus and for the sake of the kingdom, we pray. Amen.